This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Friday, June 21st. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. As Elizabeth Warren's presidential candidacy gathers momentum, establishment Democrats are nervously reckoning with the leftward drift of the party. Warren has a reputation for progressive policy ideas, but she's distancing herself from Bernie Sanders-style democratic socialism. Instead, she's casting herself as a pragmatic advocate for the middle class, who has specific plans to reform education, health care, and a financial system that advantages the very rich. In this way, she's engaging head-on with an emerging discussion about how to fix what is wrong with capitalism. In an interview in March with John Heilman for the show The Circus, a TV series on the Trump era, Warren had this to say about capitalism. Today, you have John Hickenlooper on television and like is afraid to say yes, I'm a capitalist, right? He like, feels like the party is inhospitable to the notion that he could embrace capitalism. I mean, sitting here right now, if I said to you, are you a capitalist? You would say what? Yes. And? Well, but, that nothing? I believe in markets. Right. Markets could produce a lot of value, but let me be clear. Markets without rules are theft. Sheila Kolhatkar joins me to discuss how Warren seeks to transform capitalism and why she scares many Democrats. Sheila, welcome back. It's great to be here, Dorothy. Warren seems to be staking her candidacy on the belief that capitalism just isn't working anymore for most people. And she has a plan, as she likes to say, for this, that, and the other thing. What is her plan to make the American economic system more fair? To put it very simply, she is proposing a much heavier role of government in the economy. She thinks that the government should play the role of leveling the playing field. She says this repeatedly. She says voters want government to level the playing field. She's trying to push back against this conservative movement we've had of smaller government and that government is screwing things up and that the private market can do things better. We have found that that has not worked out for a lot of people, uh, that the government itself has been corrupted by the influence of private money. So she she's saying that the government should be kind of intervening in all sorts of different aspects of private life and helping make things more equal, helping the people who don't have natural advantages gain a step up so they have an equal shot at achieving middle class success. And that, of course, leads Republicans and others to say she is a socialist. So how does she how does she fight that charge? I asked her about this socialist charge several times. And of course, she laughed at one point and said, well, that's the new Republican bugaboo. And it's clear that they're planning to really use that in a campaign against probably any Democratic candidate they end up facing. But when you ask her, you know, to share her thoughts about capitalism, she'll say, I believe in markets. And at one point I said, why do you use the word markets instead of capitalism? I mean, markets are an aspect of capitalism. Um, Is capitalism a dirty word? And she wouldn't really respond. But she has this line about how markets without rules are theft. She looks at the evolution of our economic system in sort of this historical way and goes all the way back to the period after the Great Depression when all sorts of new rules and regulations were put in place. And slowly over the last 30, 40 years, many of those have been rolled back and we've ended up with a very sort of skewed and frankly more dangerous economic system. She has said that she's a capitalist in her bones. Who are her Democratic heroes? Does she compare herself to FDR? I think she would if you asked her. She she tends to not evoke previous American heroes when she speaks about herself. I mean, she's trying to kind of carve out 
a unique position as sort of an academic who's studied these issues in a very wonky, in-depth way and who's now got the skills in Washington to try and translate them into policies. And that that is something that makes her very unique, I think, vis-a-vis um, -vis the other Democrats who are running. She does have a much deeper background in a lot of these issues. And maybe remind us what her, her recent history is and how she got into government, because she really was prescient. She was talking about what's broken with capitalism long before most people were talking about it. I think it's fair to say she didn't know exactly what was going to happen, but she knew something was going to go very badly awry because she had been tracking the rise in consumer debt for decades. So so just to give you the kind of quick history, she, um, you know, she grew up in Oklahoma. She came from a very financially sort of strapped lower middle class background. Her mother went back to work in her 50s when the family hit hard times financially. Um, you know, Warren likes to say, well, my mother got a minimum wage job at Sears, and that saved our family and saved our family home. And she points out that, you know, a minimum wage job would not do anything like that for people today. And she she ended up as a very young, married mother. And so there she was, a struggling working mom, and she she decided she wanted to go to law school. So So it's quite, you know, it's quite an impressive story because at the time it was not common for women to go back to work or to go back to school in this way. So she kind of pulled herself up, you know, she finally ended up at Harvard Law School. And the defining research of her academic career was on personal bankruptcy. And she noticed that the number of personal bankruptcies were increasing dramatically. You know, this was all through the sort of 80s, 90s. And what Senator Warren discovered was that, in fact, most bankruptcy filers had been earning middle class incomes until about a year before they filed for bankruptcy. So They'd be earning a middle-class income, something would go wrong, usually something out of their control, and then they'd spend months trying to kind of catch up, but they would end up taking on more and more debt. What did she have to say and when about the extent to which the banks were lending irresponsibly and we were moving toward a very dangerous recession? Well, through her research, she, she realized that a lot of middle-class families were uh, not seeing their incomes rise, but their costs were going up. Their, the cost of housing, education, health care, those were all rising steeply. Families were taking on debt. They were taking on credit card debt, ballooning mortgage debt to try and compensate for the fact that their earnings were not keeping up. So in the years leading up to the financial crisis, she was very aware that Many, many families in the United States were overloaded with debt, particularly mortgage debt. Uh, she was someone who paid a lot of attention to the way banks and other financial institutions peddled products to consumers. You know, there was sort of a moment in my piece where I had interviewed one of her colleagues from Harvard Law School, and he told me about how he ran into her just prior to the financial crisis, and she was going to give a speech in Washington about systemic risk. No one really talked about systemic risk until, you know, 2008. But that systemic risk means that, you know, you have a lot of different institutions which have taken on the same exact kind of risk. And then Obama appointed her to start the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. Indeed. She had already had one tour through Washington helping as a, an advisor on the reform of the bankruptcy laws. She had been rendered very cynical by that experience because... You know, this is the first time she'd really encountered heavy lobbying from the financial industry, and she had wanted a more consumer-friendly bankruptcy bill. So she was quite bitter about this, and she returned uh, to Cambridge. And then she was summoned to come and help build this new regulatory agency. And this is something that she had been advocating for for several years. She'd first written about it in 2007. 
And she had said, well, consumers need an advocate, you know, an agency in Washington that's out there making sure that big, sophisticated banks and mortgage lenders and payday lenders are not taking advantage of them. She spent around a year in Washington, you know, fighting to get this even passed. So they were victorious in that the, the CFPB was put into that bill. The bill was passed, so it was going to happen. And that was a big victory. But then there was a whole other new fight about who was going to run the CFPB. And everyone, including President Obama, felt that Elizabeth Warren was the obvious person to do that. It had been her idea, and she was an expert. Uh, but the Republicans and the financial lobby were dead set against it. So there was a very sort of ugly fight. And they said, we won't even, we will never confirm her. So she just she just had to kind of fold up her tent. So all of this helps to explain her, uh, I don't think it's too strong a word to say her antipathy for Wall Street. And interestingly, one Wall Street executive, you interviewed a number of people, told you that Warren is doing something, as he put it, quite that's quite important, which is updating some of the old democratic issues for the modern economy. Was he talking about antitrust? What was he referring to? Well, I think he was acknowledging the fact that we have a lot of issues uh, plaguing middle class Americans that just our regulatory framework is not designed to address. And he specifically mentioned antitrust. The rise of the tech industry has far outpaced the government's ability to implement proper regulations and protections. Um, so I want to stop you right yeah. there. Uh, and because it's interesting, because she says, I have a plan, I have a plan. And she does have a plan for most of these things. So what does she propose to do in terms of regulating Silicon Valley? Well, she argues that the giant platform companies such as Google, Facebook, Apple, that they are like utilities and that they are, should be heavily regulated by the government the way utilities are. Obviously, that's very terrifying to a lot of people in Silicon Valley. She does also have a point. A lot of these positions, though, are going to mean that she isn't going to get a great deal of money (laughs) from some of the big money bags. That's exactly right. And she has made a very kind of prominent point in her campaign uh, about the fact that she is not doing any big donor fundraising. Now, it is worth noting that, um, you know, other candidates like Senator Biden have been criticized, at least in the press, for doing kind of Wall Street fundraisers or fundraisers with big Hollywood moguls. However, um, you know, Senator Warren didn't have to do that because she had $10 million left over in her Senate campaign that she was able to transfer to her presidential campaign. And many of the other candidates didn't have that. The fact of the matter is she raised that Senate money in part by doing the kinds of fundraisers she's now sworn off of. She has said several times that she would, that all bets are off If she were to become the Democratic nominee, she says the Republicans will come armed to the teeth with their big donors. So I will be willing to do big dollar fundraising at that point. One of the things that hurt Hillary Clinton was the perception that she was in the pocket of Wall Street. So I I wanted you to talk a little bit about how Elizabeth Warren compares to Hillary Clinton. There are obvious similarities and then some pretty obvious differences, too. Well, demographically, obviously, they have a few things in common. Uh, You know, someone pointed out to me jokingly their haircuts are quite similar. They're they're mature women who are very brainy and bookish and smart and opinionated. But aside from that, really, they don't have a lot in common. Their backgrounds are vastly different. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is really a newcomer to Washington and grew up under very different circumstances, had a completely different career. She doesn't have all this political history and baggage that 
Hillary Clinton had, for better or worse. And also their ideas and their approach are very different. I mean, Hillary Clinton, I think, was in an awkward situation where she was trying to have it both ways. Um, I think she was also perhaps slow to recognize that voters wanted a dramatic departure from the way things had been done before. I think Hillary had some challenges with the people skills. I don't fault her for that because of the level of scrutiny and pressure and the constant criticism. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has avoided some of that. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You were out there with her on the campaign trail. How do voters in red states respond to her? It was interesting because when you listen to her, some of her language does echo Trump's at times. Um, her talking about how elites have corrupted the system and the struggles of middle class and lower middle class Americans. I mean, there were times when it really just sounded eerily familiar. Um, but the fact is she she puts the blame for all of these problems in a completely different place from Trump. So Trump is blaming immigrants and the other. He's stoking all this sort of racial fear. She is she is pointing at the system and saying to people, look who designed this system. Who does it benefit it doesn't benefit you. It benefits these, you know, small group of people at the very top who have basically bought Washington and uh, who have sort of shaped the economic system to favor them. Did you get the sense that many Democrats, especially women, actually, are traumatized by 2016? They say they'd like to support a female candidate. They're just terrified that the same thing will happen. And so that helps to explain why Joe Biden has leapt so far ahead. I heard this a lot, particularly when I started reporting this piece, which was in the sort of early winter. People would say she has the best ideas. I really like her ideas. She's thoughtful. She could never win against Trump. Now, I think people are saying that a little bit less than they were. But of course, yes, Joe Biden has this huge lead in many um, primary polls. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that people feel more confident that putting sort of a more familiar kind of traditional type of candidate up against Trump would be successful. Now, whether that proves to be correct, it sort of depends on your theory of why Trump won in the first place. And, and where we are now, too. So, and that gets us to our economic proposals because the economy is really strong right now. And traditionally, people have reelected a president who has a strong economic record. Tell us about her economic proposals, maybe just that we could concentrate on the, the wealth tax. Warren has put out this very ambitious agenda. She wants to retire student debt. She wants to solve the opioid crisis. She wants to invest billions and billions in infrastructure. She's planning to pay for all that through this wealth tax that she's proposed. It was a very clever campaign technique because typically what happens is Democrats or even Republicans go out there and they want to promise a whole bunch of wonderful things. And people will say, yeah, but that sounds great. But how are you going to pay for it? And she has sort of neutralized that whole uh, line of argument by saying we're going to pay for it by taxing billionaires. The wealth tax uh, 
you know, has been tried in other countries. The one that she's proposing would consist of a 2% tax on the net worth uh, uh, greater than $50 million. And so this this would end up applying to approximately 75,000 families, the richest 75,000 families. So she's been saying she could pay for this laundry list of really ambitious social programs and still have billions and billions of dollars left over to to do a whole other laundry list of of special projects. It sounds too good to be true. Well, that's the tricky thing about it. It, It's so simple. It's sort of like, why didn't someone else think of this and do it sooner? Now, when I started talking to kind of both people who would have to pay this tax and also economists who, who study tax increases and so on, a lot of people said, listen, a lot of other countries have tried this. And there are kind of several layers of problems. One is the political problem of getting it implemented because it sounds really scary to a lot of people. Even if you do get it passed and this became law, implementing it is hard because you need to establish the net worth of all of these families. Uh, there would be a huge fight over that. So what does she say to them? She says that that's not a good reason to not do it. Now, the fact that it does sound so tricky to actually pull off did cause me to wonder whether this was perhaps a campaign tool because when she talks about the wealth tax on the campaign trail, people get really excited. And it I mean, I don't want to kind of equate these two things, but it reminded me of the lock her up chant at many Trump rallies. Like people get riled wow. up about the wealth tax. And there was a, an exchange I witnessed where she, you know, she kind of said her standard line is she says, you know, I just want to tax their Rembrandts and diamonds too. And someone yelled out, yeah, and how about the yacht? And she said, yes, and the yacht with the IMAX theater. You know, people cheered, and it just felt a little, it felt a little populist. It made me a tiny bit uncomfortable. She has that rage, and that's the other thing that I find fascinating, that women in general in public try to kind of keep a lid on that because they are charged with being shrill and everything else. She isn't worried about that. She is leaning into that, you might say. I mean, with Hillary Clinton, uh, she... You could tell that she was terrified of expressing strong emotions publicly. Uh, You know, she couldn't win. She was either too soft or too hard and shrill and strident. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is just ignoring all of that conventional wisdom, and and she is building her persona around this idea of being a fighter. Um, And she mentions fighting, and I know how to fight, and we've got to fight, and, and it's interesting. It is not at all what you're used to hearing from a female candidate's Uh, We read a lot, too, about the generational split in the party between younger voters who tend to be very progressive and older mainstream Democrats like Joe Biden. Warren seems to be trying to appeal to both groups with everything we've just been talking about. What does she say about that and the worry that she's going to be perceived as too left wing to beat Donald Trump? Well, I think this comes up a lot for her. And one of the most interesting moments I had with her during some of our interviews occurred when she kind of acknowledged that a lot of what she's saying, you know, are similar to what Steve Bannon had been saying in advising Trump. I'm fairly certain she came to this on her own, but she she does see the parallels between her own ideas and Steve Bannon. So, so in response to the question of how to respond to the leftward drift, I think that's how she would respond. She really doesn't focus on social justice issues per se. She sees all of those issues as economic issues. And she frames everything that way. And so far, it seems to be working. Her polls are are up. Well, I think that those economic issues translate across party lines, and they're very powerful. And it's a matter of whether or not a lot of voters will see that although 
Trump promised a lot of those things to them, he has not delivered on most of them. And she is proposing much more concrete, specific ways to meet those promises. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thanks for having me. Sheila Kolhakar is a staff writer at The New Yorker and the author of Black Edge, Inside Information, Dirty Money, and the Quest to Bring Down the Most Wanted Man on Wall Street. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Jill Duboff with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden. <laughs>